We are back with episode 23 of the Pursuit of the Outdoors podcast. One of the great things about this podcast and the type of content I like to do quite regularly is interview some amazing people who are doing um, some amazing things in the outdoors, whether it be a blogger, a business owner, someone who might just have started a business, they might be um, walking around Australia, for example, and using that as an example, we now have Tara Romes, who's sitting in front of me at the moment. She is, now correct me if I'm wrong, Tara, you are the first woman to walk solo and unsupported, basically a lap of Australia back in May 2018. That's right. Have I said it all right there? Yeah, the the first and still the only. Still the only. (laughs) Well, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. You're so welcome. Glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. A nice sort of sunny, kind of coldish day in Melbourne, but that's all right. We're in the outdoors and it doesn't really matter. Cold's relative. Cold's relative. Absolutely right. So basically the first question I want to ask you, in maybe a sentence or two, how would you describe what it is you're doing in life? Well, I am enjoying the freedom of life and exploring and discovering as much as possible along the way and encouraging other people to do the same. So that first little bit, the freedom of life, what's your definition of that? Because to other people it might be to be able to work for themselves, it might be a number of things like our friend Laura, Laura Waters, her definition of freedom of life is to be able to basically, in some respect, disconnect from her corporate world that she had. Now she's doing what she wants, she's writing, she's travelling. So what's your definition of freedom? It's to live your dreams and to not be tied down uh, as much as possible. Not be tied down uh, by unnecessary responsibilities that society puts on you. So to to live your true life, uh, what you feel comfortable with and uh, escaping those comfort zones as well. Mm. And that's part of freedom is to push yourself out of the comfort zones and discover a much wider world that's out there for you broader horizons and uh, to be able to for for me I'm I'm in a very fortunate position where I have been traveling since 1990 Uh, pretty much uh, I've been at vagabonding since then yep and uh, my life has been about travel um, volunteer work around the world I've worked on ships so when I'm on a ship I'm always traveling from port to port so there's that freedom of travel and movement yeah but other people might interpret freedom differently. So if you have grown up on the road, your freedom might be to be able to stop and be still and to pursue a career and to, to raise a family to love the same values as yep. you. So freedom can be interpreted in many different ways. And that's your way of interpreting it. My, my, my yeah. interpretation is to be able to just get on the road and go. Go, yeah, in a short sense. So there's a, there's a lot to unpack there like, Obviously, you mentioned you know you've done a, a lot of jobs here, you know, working on ships and all that. So since the nineties, you've been a vagabond as you said since the nineties. What made you to decide that you wanted to do that back then? Like, what 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 was the change? Like, you know, everyone sort of got that little what I call an unlock moment when you go, ah, maybe that's what I want to do, and they work to sort of making that happen. And so, talk me through your. I kind of fell into it. Um, on the day after my last HSC exam, I was on a bus out of the snowy mountains um, and I went to Young and picked cherries. Uh, so I joined, I was just after the cherry season had started and yep. I picked the cherries for a season. Yep. Um, I really enjoyed that environment, uh, just being outdoors, uh, doing something in nature and having a free feed at the same time. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, after that, I was invited um, to get a bit of work experience on a farm. 
with some friends uh, in, where was that? Um, Utha, uh, near, I think, Kondobolin. Yep. And uh, it, was, um, it was a real eye-opener, um, learning the hardships of living on the land. Um, but they were able to employ me just uh, very casually and I could move on any time I liked. Yep. So I worked, um, we, we did a harvest, uh, there was a lambing season as well, and then I was able to move on to grapes. So while I was waiting for my HSC results to come through, yep. <laughs> and then the HSC results came through, my, my, um, my, my senior high school uh, results to get into university, yeah. I was like two points short of getting into heartbreaking. my course. Or maybe what's so heartbreaking. Yeah, completely changed my life. It was like, okay, so I'm not going to university for three or four years. What am I going to do now? And I'd fallen into the Harvest Trail around yep. Australia, and I, I really enjoyed it. I liked the people yeah. that I was working with. There's a community, and yeah. the, the people look out for each other, especially older people looking out for the younger people who yep. have just joined the Harvest Trail. Yep. And, um, yeah, just kind of like went from one job to the other that allowed me to continue moving so yeah. I didn't have to stay put for too long. And so how long did you do that for? A couple of years? Or are you like, now I've got to go see the rest of Australia or the rest of the world or what else yeah. is out there, which is always the question when you discover something new? I did it for a short time. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and each time I've come back from exploring the world, I go back into harvest trail work. Yeah, so cool. if, I, if there's nothing else available immediately, yeah. there's always something, yeah. uh, there's always a season of some sort that I can get involved with, whether it's pruning or yeah. picking or packing. <laughs> something to do. That's right, yeah, so it's always something to fall back on. Yep. Um, and I discovered that very early, so yep. very fortunate to, yep. to be able to do that. So that was a short while, so what yeah. happened after that? Oh, gosh, I, oh, I joined a theatre trip. Wow, okay. <laughs> Travelling theatre trip. Yeah. So, travelled through New South Wales, Queensland, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands. Uh, we did uh, a lot of work, um, especially in Papua New Guinea and Solomon Islands, uh, with businesses and schools. So, um, because English isn't the first language for most people in those countries, yep. um, we did workshops to, um, with the schools for like, personal growth uh, and awareness. Um, ethics uh, for businesses we did work ethics and values yeah. um, particularly um, stealing is different to borrowing <laughs> and your boss's property is not necessarily your property yeah. <laughs> and leave your payback back and at home yeah. tribal fights don't come to the workplace yeah. <laughs> those types of very, very simple world, yeah. things <laughs> it, it was very interesting yeah. uh, so I traveled around uh, Papua New Guinea for hmm. 10 months and the Solomon Islands for one month and that gave me a wonderful taste of other cultures and being able to explore overseas. Yeah, fantastic. So I sold a lot of cars, like I would buy a nice car, live out of my car and then say, I want to go overseas. So I'd sell my car well, yeah. and I'd go overseas until I had no money left and come back right. home Get a new car. to start again. Start again. <laughs> but if that's like, for most people that would be a little bit stressful. But at the same time, if you've got a different mentality around that, and I suppose this is the whole thing really that underpins everything there, what you, you've done and what you've been doing, what you're going to do, all comes down to your mentality. You look at that and you go, yep, cool, there's a lot of work involved to get that happening, but I know I've got the right mental strength to get myself through that. And we'll talk about that a little, little bit later in terms of the mentoring side of things that you're up to. But then there's other people who look at that and go, 
I would never even touch that with a 10-foot pole because <laughs> I just don't have that mental strength or even physical strength that might think. But I think it also really speaks to the fact that we're all capable of doing something like that. It just might be on different levels. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I like to tell people, if you have a dream and you want to live a certain lifestyle or you want to achieve something in your life, you have to design a lifestyle around that. Uh, yeah. And there are certain there are sacrifices you have to make, compromises yeah. you need to make along the way. Sure. Uh, sometimes, uh, depending on what financial situation you're in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But you, you can design a life to achieve those dreams. Absolutely. I think at that point, I think everything is possible. It's just, A, how badly you want it, and B, like, what are you prepared to sacrifice to get to where you want to be? Mm. So tell me about hiking, bushwalking, camping. Where did that all start you? What's your little origin story around that? Oh, mum and dad. Yeah. <laughs> I had fantastic parents. I was yep. a free-range kid. We lived with bushland around the house and I could just wander off and watch the animals and learn from nature. And nature was probably... Nature was my classroom. Yeah. Uh, she was my teacher. So I spent a lot of time out there learning um, and even just watching the, uh, the ants and yeah. what they did during the day and learning what the weather is going to do by watching what the animals are doing, whether it's going to change during the day. And uh, then my parents, um, they made it a priority for us to go camping every school holidays. And we didn't have much money, but what we did have went towards those holidays. And we had two or three camping holidays a year into national parks. They'd get us kids involved in the park ranger programs. Yeah, fantastic. And children's minds are sponges. And you just absorb all of that information the park rangers are giving you. Mm-hmm. And learning about the geography, the human history, uh, the animals and their behaviours, the night animals go yeah. spotlighting at yeah. night with the rangers, and bushwalking. And little kids, they tire fairly quickly, but it's quite amazing how far you can get them on your shoulders. I remember walking. Dad's walking, I'm sitting on the shoulders looking at koalas in the trees. Yeah. Well, you know, you've done 5K when you sort of conked out at a K or something. Yeah, yeah I get that. Yeah, and as you get older, you're bouncing up the track way ahead of the family. Yeah. And wait, 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 I can't see you. Our times have changed. Jumping over snakes. Yeah. So it sounds like all that sort of stuff is, you know, it's given you quite a, an appreciation probably when you were a. Um, a child but also as you've gotten older and you know the more the stuff you've been up to sort of recently it's to give you more appreciation for it and sort of built that mentality around the sustainability ethical and all that sort of stuff that's right yeah yeah um i think one of the biggest things that happened when i was young i was 12 years old and read robin davidson's book tracks uh in the school library yeah and i was fascinated by the way she wrote about her connection with nature how intrinsic it was Um, it it just became natural for her to read her environment she she knew what was happening she knew how to respond without thinking about it Um, it was just her intuition and uh, I my 12 year old heart resonated with that and I thought I need that in my life that this is what I have to experience and uh, when I was 16 um, the family went down to Kosciuszko National Park and yep. camped at Sawbrick Creek for the Christmas holidays in 88, no, 87. Yep. And while we were there, a big sign went out the front, um, lease for auction uh, during this Christmas New Year, two weeks. And in February, my parents went to the lease auction and came back with the property lease. Wow. <laughs> That's wild. <laughs> and we moved out. And so in my teens, uh, Kosciuszko National Park was my background, my, my backyard. 
so a lot of my bushwalking background comes from the national Kosciuszko National Park. Yeah. And that's where I started doing really long day walks, overnight walks. Yeah. And uh, that's that's where I did my first overnight solo uh, walking. And I had really good teachers for navigation yep. and uh, reading the snow as well. Yep. Lots of snowshoeing, yep. cross country skiing. Yeah. Yeah. Real intense backcountry. Yeah. Stuff. And how was that first overnight solo for you? It was where I was supposed to be. Mm. There was nothing frightening because uh, I'd grown up familiar with nature mm. and all the sounds and movement around me. Yeah. Uh, so it, it just felt right. Yeah, no fears or anything like that. Just yeah. just another half of the course, really. That's right. Sounds like it, yeah. yeah. So then we sort of come to, I suppose, your, what I, you know, what you've described in your website as your just over 17,000 uh, kilometre lap of Australia. Mm. So let's talk about that from conception right through to um, actually doing it. What prompted you to want to do this back in um, 2018? There's a long backstory. That's cool. Let's talk about <laughs> there, it. There will be a book yeah, in the that, future. Yes, and that's, I was going to get to that as well. Um, so I, in, in 2008, I started doing these uh, awareness walks, long yep. walks to raise awareness about different issues like um, marine conservation, yep. um, clean energy for eternity. I did some walks for them yeah, cool. and human rights, justice uh, type uh, topics yep. and I'd, I'd walk along roads or long bush walks like Australian Alpine walking track and meet with people just start conversations raised funds for different organizations grassroots Australian organizations yeah, cool. and uh, I love doing those and uh, I heard about um, the buyback scheme in the southwest of WA in 2009-2010 for the commercial shark fishing industry I love sharks I I adore them. I have 46 shark tattoos on my body. I, I love them so much. Wow, yeah. And uh, I thought, I'll, I'll, um, I'll go over there. It's the perfect, it, it's the season for it right yep. now. And I'll walk for shark conservation. And I was thinking, everyone will understand. It's a hot topic. And I was by myself, yep. uh, walking unsupported. I became a slow-moving target for the families that were, felt their livelihoods were threatened by the changing industry. So there was a, I think the government was offering $100,000 uh, to um, buy back the boats uh, or uh, diversify into another part of yep. the fishing industry. Uh, so they could sell their fleet, get an extra $100,000 and go into something completely different if they wanted to. But that's what they'd grown up with. That's all they knew to do. Uh, so I was very naive uh, about how hot a topic it really was. Yep. Uh, so I... The further south I went around the west coast, uh, the more dangerous it became for me. And I had people stalking me through towns, throwing glass bottles at me when they drove past in their cars. Oh, so beautiful yeah. again. <laughs> and um, death threats. Wow. Not just death threats by email, phone, text message, um, social media, but people will pull up on the side of the road beside me and just face-to-face -face death threats. And I was by myself, and I was very frightened. Yeah, absolutely. And I pulled out of that walk. It was supposed to be a 1,400-kilometre walk. I only managed to walk about 450 kilometres of it before I felt too vulnerable. So and this was the, I think you said 2008, correct? This is 2000, um, early 2010. 2000, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah. And, um, Unbelievable. Yeah, so I took off back to the East Coast and went into hiding. And I didn't know how important 
my time in nature and bush walking and being outdoors, active outdoors was until I began to get very, very sick. And uh, I tried to take my life. I was still getting death threats even after I pulled out of the walk and it was all gone and I went back home and I was hiding. Yeah. I shut down all my social media accounts um, oh and I was still getting phone calls in the middle of the night, like two, three o'clock in the morning, someone would be calling and abusing me, like two years later. Um, so I became very, very sick yeah. and I attempted to take my life three times um, in 2010, hospitalized. Yeah. And uh, during my recovery, I found a fantastic psychologist and she sat me down and she said, I, it was our, I think it was a third visit, or very early on in our therapy. Yeah. Um, it was very intense therapy, like once a week. And she said, I want you to do a timeline. And on this timeline, you can only put in the good things that have happened. Yep. And which is really difficult for someone who's deep in depression, post-traumatic stress disorder and massive anxiety issues. Yeah. Because uh, it was dark, dark, dark. And yeah. I could only think of all the bad things that were happening in my life. So it was a fantastic exercise just to get my mind out of that um, dark place. And uh, so along the timeline, there was like bushwalking, sailing, kayaking, bushwalking, skiing, bushwalking, skiing, bushwalking, swimming, bushwalking, bushwalking. It was just all nature yeah. and outdoors. And yeah. she said, look at this. You've been using nature as therapy your whole life. Because um, I, I, my, my depression and post-traumatic stress disorder goes back to when I was six years yep. old. Okay. Uh, it's become quite complex. Yep. And uh, she said, my, my prescription for you is to go for a walk every day. <laughs> so I was living in a little country town. I started going for little walks along the country lanes. And then I remembered reading Robin Davidson's book and the feeling that I got when I was reading that. And I thought, that's what I need to reconnect with. Yep. I, I disconnected with that feeling that I'd been using my whole life. Yeah, I've been using it, yeah. And I thought, okay, um, let's go for a long walk. It's time. Uh, I might walk across Australia. And, As you do. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I did a lot of research about my mental health and yep. <laughs> background noise. So ambient, isn't it? <laughs> you want outdoors and you're like, oh, it's always inside. We'll come outdoors, same stuff. That's okay. <laughs> this is what we deal with. Yeah, I started yeah. researching the state of mental health in Australia yep. and resources, mental health resources and services in more remote regional areas. Yeah. And I, I was quite shocked that uh, for the lack of resources out there. And after a couple of years into my personal recovery, I thought I can actually take this walk around Australia, not just a personal walk across Australia for my own recovery. I can take my recovery story as a story of hope and share that with all of these regional parts of Australia powerful. who are struggling themselves. Yeah. So that's what I did. That's how it happened. <laughs> and how was it like when you go around to these towns and talking to whoever, like how was it received? Like I can only imagine positively, but you know, yeah. and also given what you'd experienced previously, walking through towns and you know, it's obviously for a cause and, and whatnot. Like how was it? Initially, um, I must admit it would have been. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some communities were fantastic most, most yeah. communities were very supportive yeah. and uh, I, was, I was quite overwhelmed and blown away by the support from some of them that's great um, some of them were like oh yeah someone just came through last year and did that yeah, <laughs> you, you, you're another one yeah. uh, I, I do understand that some communities uh, do experience like charity fatigue uh, so yeah. they get a lot of people asking and asking and asking yeah. for help so sometimes especially in the cities um, I, I 
that's what I would be faced with uh, in the more populated areas. But the smaller towns, I say, for example, Karatha on the west coast. Yes, yeah. Um, there's a wonderful group of women there, the Pilbara Motorcycle Sisters. Yep. It's a women's motorcycle club. Cool. Uh, and they do incredible work for suicide prevention, uh, community networking, yeah. and uh, protecting women against domestic violence. Yep. Uh, so they, they were following my walk all the way up the West Coast. And as I was closing in on Karatha, they contacted me and they said, when you get here, we would like to do something with you. And we're going to look after you. And they did. That's awesome. How good that? <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic. And I experienced similar uh, situations the whole way around Australia. Yeah. The Aboriginal communities were really helpful. They looked after me. They knew exactly what I was doing out there because uh, when I reached... Um, on the way to Roeburn, one of the locals from Roeburn um, yeah. did a, an interview with me on ABC Regional Radio for Pilbara. And that interview was repeated throughout the region as I was walking through. Um, but just the day I was leaving Roeburn, this lovely elder uh, from the local Aboriginal community yep. wandered across the road from the community radio station and asked if I would like to come in for an interview. Sure, okay. So five minutes later, we were sitting in the radio um, studio. Yeah. And uh, her, her, um, her segment is in local dialect. Her program is in local dialect. And uh, so she would ask a question in the dialect and then ask me in English I would reply in English and she would interpret that yep, into local dialect, dialect. Yeah. and I didn't Amazing. realize this until I'd reached Northern Territory but this interview was then translated into local dialects through Western Australia and Northern Territory as I was walking up through the area the regions in the country yeah. um, they knew what I was doing because they listened to heard it, it on radio. Yeah, fantastic. So they yeah. kind of done a lot of the, in that section anyway. A lot of the legwork for you mm. for awareness and that. Yeah. It's so I also did a lot of talks along the way yep. uh, for community health centres, med- um, medical centres. Uh, people would come in from far and wide, uh, not just to hear my story, but also to share their own stories. And as a result of the in- the radio interviews, newspaper interviews, I spoke with a lot of people on the side of the road as well yeah they just come out meet me I was their first point of contact and uh, they'd share what was happening in their lives and I just encourage them to go and seek more help or find a support network of some sort and, and sometimes that's all it can be whether it be someone like yourself who's you know doing such a, a, an epic adventure or someone just you know who just comes out as a talk and there's just something that resonates with that person then to then go out and either do something similar to change their life or as you said go and seek help um, and sometimes that, that's all it needs to be, just a chat, whether it be one-on-one or in a group setting. And then, like, we'll, we'll probably do tomorrow when you do the talk at the expo with the ladybirds and something, I'm sure, something you'll say or even one of the others talks will say, we'll, uh, we'll flick a switch in someone and inspire them to go to, to go do something else. So, yeah, it's pretty powerful, A, what words can do, and even just, I suppose, you know, in your case, the power of the outdoors and, and the community as well. Like, it's still such an underrated thing. Every single talk, and yeah. many talks since I finished the walk, there's, there are people there. And the reason they're there is to hear that message, whether they know it or not. Yeah. Um, they walk away feeling much better and in a safer place. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So you do the 17,000 kilometres. Yeah. What happened? 17,200. Sorry, I do apologise. <laughs> 7,200? Is it exactly 200? Is it like 256? Yeah, it will take a couple of (laughs) guesses. There you go. If anyone wants to break that distance record, it's going to be more than 17,200. How long does it take you to do? 
Four and a half years. Yeah. But that's with seasonal breaks and injuries. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's a regular yeah. deal with the extreme heat and the extreme cold as well. Yeah. well. What did you find was, say, the toughest section? Oh, there were a few really tough sections. Yeah. Um, there were sections that were very exhausting. I pushed myself to not not just to my mental limits, but beyond those to my physical limits. Because the, the head plays a, a lot um, when you're out there. And uh, I learned to push push beyond uh, when my head when my head said no more. I knew that I had at least another thirty percent left in, so I could push further. Um, wow. And on those days, if I was feeling extremely physically exhausted, I would then start to feel a little bit lonely, and then I'd spiral, mm. and I'd wake up the next morning and go, "It's a new day. Let's get out on the road." Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it was always temporary. Yep. Um, but uh, there were days where I was almost running out of water and the truckies would help me out with that. Uh, there are other days where I was a little bit frightened for my life, like wild dog attack. Um, I had a, a pack of wild dogs have a go. Wow, but okay. obviously they weren't hungry enough because I'm here still. Yeah. <laughs> Far out. Um, but I found out there in those moments of danger, your instincts kick in and the things that you've learned over the years immediately come back. They're there and they're available to use. It's incredible to feel fight or flight, but yeah, you're right when things just come back yeah. in situations where you've never faced them before, but something comes back from your childhood or your teenager or early adulthood, and it, um, it carries you through. So The uh, fly plague. That was probably the worst bit. What? The, the, the fly plague. Okay. That was the worst part. Yeah. Kind of <laughs> I was walking through the Gascoigne region yeah. on the west coast. Yeah. Uh, a, a cyclone came in. Uh, I was able to. I had enough time to backtrack to yep. a host, 100 kilometres back down the road, and uh, kind of slept through that cyclone. <laughs> How do you do that? <laughs> it, it had reduced from a category three to a category one. Oh well. Then, and yeah. I was exhausted. <laughs> and I woke up in the morning like six o'clock, and I went to my hosts, and I go, "Has a cyclone gone through yet? Yeah." Oh, I, I slipped through it. Um, but I did get to experience another one later. <laughs> had, to up camp, for it. had to camp in it. Yeah, um, but in between the two cyclones, there was a fly plague that lasted almost three weeks. And not just a few flies sticking and bugging around the face. Right. I had like full length trousers, shirts, cuffs, buttoned, um, collar up fly net tucked into the collar and they still managed to get in I'm inside my clothes and inside the fly net I had thousands of them I was I was almost black covered from top to bottom yeah my barrow that I was pushing along the highways yes. that was covered in flies it was revolting and there was no let up from about 20 minutes before first light to about 40 minutes after last light lies and flies and flies and flies and flies trying to eat anything was really difficult <laughs> and it became so stressful um they, they, they is this x-ray can i yeah, swear? yeah go for it they shit all <laughs> over me all day i was just covered my any exposed skin was covered in fly shit they'd shit through the fly net into my onto my face into my eyes and then one day i was up near x mouth and something fell on my lip and I reached in underneath the fly net and it was a white speck. They were trying to lay eggs on my face, into my mouth, a larvae or whatever it is the flies do. And I was like, nah, that's enough. Did you get yeah. sick at all from any of this? I didn't, I, I actually did get sick from the, um, 
insect repellent. Yeah. Oh. So I had to use Tropical Strength deep loaded insect repellent. Yeah. Because I didn't know of anything else at that stage. Yep. And um, but that moment when something landed on my lip, I lost it. I I yeah, just that... couldn't think straight. I I dumped my barrow off the side of the road. I walked into the bush and I yelled and yelled and yelled and yelled. There was nothing else I could do. I just completely lost control of myself and my mind. And it's like, now what do I do? So how do you get yourself out of that one? Like, I phoned my brother. Yeah. <laughs> like opposite sides of the continent. You couldn't get much further yeah. from Byron Bay. Yeah. I phoned my brother Steve and my dad was there as well. So they could, the whole family kind of like got together and decided what they were going to do to help me out of this situation. And then yeah. they phoned me back. Roadhouse owner up the road's coming down to help you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and the three days I rested, the fly flag was almost gone. So it was right at the very end of the fly plate. It pushed me over the edge. Yeah. <laughs> but then after the three days, like, how were you mentally? Were you like, cool, I'm good to go again. Yeah. I'm physically good to go again. No more larvae, no more fly shitty on me. <laughs> yeah, it was great. And it felt so nice and clean. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. But even now, just a couple of flies start flying around my face. I start twitching, yeah, like involuntarily the, twitching. Where, where are the rest of the mates? Where are they all coming from? Oh. It's traumatic. Oh, yeah. All right, so finished that in May 2018. What happens after? Like, where do we? Are you resting somewhere? Are you just taking a break from? Are you thinking about another trip? Yeah, I was always thinking about another trip. There's always something else happening. Yeah, I get it. So I, I attempted to do the Great North Walk. Uh, between Sydney and Newcastle, yeah. which I need to go back and finish yes. uh, because it was too cold. I had the wrong kit for the season. It was starting to drop into winter conditions. And um, so I'll go back and I'll finish that later. Was this um, late last year you did that? Uh, no, Early immediately issue? after. So immediately I, went, up, yeah. I went straight from finishing the walk around Australia yeah. to hopping on the Great North Track. Yeah, I and, remember this one. Uh, then sat down, uh, did some house sitting, yep. pet sitting, and started writing a couple of books. Yeah. And I got bored with that. Uh, so I hopped on my bike. I bought a bike, a touring bike, a, a surly uh, disc trucker, fitted it out for touring with panniers. Yeah. And then rode a thousand kilometers through South Australia um, until I realized that oh, I don't, actually don't like the traffic coming up so close behind me. Yeah. So I'm, uh, that's on hold until okay. I can organize a ride that takes me off the highways. Um, uh, actually, what I would really like to do, this is um, one of my dreams, mm. is to ride across to Western Australia, mm-hmm. um, ride the Mundabidi bike track, walk the Bibbulmun track, mm-hmm. and then ride to uh, South Australia, mm-hmm. ride um, Mawson Trail, and walk the Hyson track, and uh, then ride to Tasmania and ride the Tasmanian track yeah. or walk the Tasmanian track. So all human powered. Yeah. <laughs> and when do you think you might or want to do that? Like, is that... After the next expedition, which yes. is in the winter. Yes. And tell us about that expedition. This is called, it's called Climate. Yes. So C-L-I-M-B. Yep. Eight, numeral eight. Numeral eight, yep. It's a climate action expedition. Yep. Very topical. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I am affected by climate anxiety. Okay. Um, trying to get my head around the future of this planet what yep. we're doing what we're not doing um, and all all the media fuss or lack of um, correct information that we're receiving yeah it can do your head in and I thought to both myself, sides I think yeah rather than just get upset about it I'm going to do something about it 
awesome. so I've decided uh, I'm putting together a team of women. Uh, we're going to walk 800 kilometres across the Australian Alps yep. from Namaji National Park, uh, Mount Franklin Ski Chalet Ruins, yep. and uh, through Kosciuszko National Park, through the Alpine National Parks, all the way down to Borbor. Yep. On the way, we'll visit eight ski resorts, yep. uh, interviewing them about their environmental initiatives, uh, what they're doing to give back or to reduce their impact, yeah. um, and protecting conservation projects as well. And. Uh, We'll attempt to climb, depends, totally depends on the conditions on the day. We're yep. going to attempt to climb 38 peaks, yep. so the two highest peaks in, in Namaji National Park. 26 peaks and knolls over 2,000 metres in Kosciuszko National Park, and the highest 10 peaks in Victoria. Yep. So uh, I don't know how that's going to go, we'll see. <laughs> we might do eight peaks. <laughs> but I think the point is, if you're getting around to all these chalets and talking to these people, that's probably most important part of the whole thing isn't it yeah that's right climb the peaks don't be wrong if you get all that done it'd be fantastic that'd be it would be a first it would be, yeah it'd be a first, and that'd be great but there, i feel quite like a, quite a few firsts involved yeah, in this absolutely. one absolutely so you said eight women uh no 800 oh. kilometers 800 kilometers eight and, ski resorts yep. um the the core team is women but we're inviting anyone from the community to come and join us yeah they just need to contact me first yeah um it's important that i know that their motivation is in the right place cool as well um, and we'll be talking, we'll be involving uh, scout groups, school groups, yeah. um, sports and recreation groups along the way, anyone who, whose heart is in the right place and would love to be involved in the expedition is invited to come and join. It's divided into 15 different sections yeah. and the shortest sections are 8 kilometres, the longest sections are more than 90 kilometres. Yeah. Uh, so depending on people's experience levels as well, depends on where they can come and join us and for how long. Yeah, do a leg um, here and a leg there, yeah. But I'm also using this to help people understand the impact of climate change, the climate emergency on our mountains, on the, the, the plants, the animals, um, the rising snow level, mm-hmm. uh, um, snow le- uh, sno- right. less snowfall, yeah. rising snow line. Yes, snow line, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, how this is impacting summer and the water catchment systems. Um, but not focusing entirely on that introducing concepts that people can adopt into their own personal lives from day to day as well as when they're going out and using the mountains so part of the interviews with ski resorts is giving people using the mountains um, an option of the best place to spend their ski dollar the the most ethical sustainable responsible uh, resorts that they can invest into and hopefully this will also have a carry-on effect. The resorts that aren't doing so much will be encouraged to do more to fantastic. also attract that. Too. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I mean, there's, again, there's a lot to sort of unpack there. Like, we could even just do, a, like, a podcast episode on that walk itself. But <laughs> I think the thing is, as well, that I find interesting, and you said it right at the start of this, this um, when we started talking about the climate, is that you're talking about sitting back and watching people who are getting upset about it rather than getting upset about it so they do nothing and sitting and do nothing you're actually going to go do something about it and I think that's been my big issue with this a lot of people out there who are, are complaining and getting angry and upset and whatever but aren't actually doing anything about it like I go and, and they, they're more than happy to tell you that oh you're doing the wrong thing you're doing the wrong thing it's like okay fine I might be doing the wrong thing you're getting upset about it but what are you maybe doing about it so I like the fact that you're actually going yep I'm annoyed I'm angry um, all these things but now I'm actually going to try and do something about it and use my knowledge and work with people who share the same ethics and morals, etc. 
get around to these lodges, do this amazing walk, and have other people join us who share the same ethics and laws. And let's actually do something about it. Because the whole thing, talk is talk, talk is cheap. Mm. Action is invaluable. Yeah. Yeah, which I think is um, the most important one, the most important thing. You know, I think, I think deep down we all want to do something about it, whether it be something really small. And I think if we all sort of chip away, chip away, chip away at it, we can make some really good changes. Um, I don't like this mentality of I'm just one person. Who am I in amongst that? I think the biggest thing to get the government to listen is actually all collectively start chipping in and doing our own little bit and actually going, we don't need the government to invest the money. We don't need to make the change. Actually, people power is going to change this. Like, I don't know. Like, I just, it might sound a bit warped or a bit, like, idealistic, but I think that's how you do it. That's how you get governments to listen. One thing we have to understand is you are an individual, but you're one of millions. A massive community. Yeah. Together we can make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, another aspect of climate is... um, we're going to make it zero single-use plastic, so Great. Uh, as much as possible, and that will show other people that are using the backcountry and or bushwalking, multi-day bushwalking, how they can also take those practices out with them, uh, so they can reduce their plastic mm. use. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll be running a blog explaining everything that we're doing, awesome. getting to the start of the expedition and leaving at the end. Um, there'll be no planes. Yeah. Uh, it'll be public transport. Uh, people will be helping us out along the way, support vehicles yeah. along the way. Yeah. Um, and just incorporating as many of these ethical practices as possible yeah. into the expedition. I think that's the point. As long as you're going to be doing something, like it, it's going to be hard to do absolutely everything. And eventually, there'll be things that are incorporated into our lifestyles where we can we, we can you know start tackling those bigger ways of things. But I think if you yeah, as you just pointed out, it's not about doing everything, but it's about doing what we possibly can to make those differences. Yeah. And then you can you know then you can start chipping away at the bigger stuff and the bigger, even as you said like even just making uh, small changes to the um, use of plastic like no, no single use you know that that's in itself that's a big change for most people you know they go from that to using um, the same plastic over and over again yeah and for a lot of people they just need someone to tell them and show them how it's done it's as simple as that absolutely yeah, yeah. and how are you going in terms of with all the stuff that you're doing, like you know, you, your website is really well set up. Like as someone who comes from a marketing web background and stuff, I love how your website's set up. It's so clean, it's so simple. It tells a story. It's got all your, um, I suppose, your articles that add you know credibility and sort of to what you're doing and then what you actually what's coming up and all this stuff. So like, great, thank you, great job on that. Like you know, <laughs> but, but how are you seeing like in terms of like marketing and promoting and like social media? Like how do you go with all that sort of stuff? Because you've got so much on it. There's such a story to tell. <laughs> <laughs> and through digital marketing and media and all of that, that, that's a really good way you can reach people at scale. So how are you, A, how are you finding all that sort of side of things and B, how are you sort of implementing it and what you're doing? Yeah, I like to align myself with organisations, uh, bloggers, yep. groups that have similar values or yep. the same values and uh, we work together. Yep. Yeah, I promote them, they promote what I'm doing and uh, it increases um, the audience. Awareness, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I suppose what I was getting at is like in terms of how... Do you find it difficult with, I suppose, I mean, the way you and I connected was more so, I think it was over, I'm going to say it was over Instagram, maybe. I, like, I've been following you for quite a while on Instagram, and I'm pretty sure that's how I um, came across you first. So how have you found that whole world of, like, putting yourself out there and, you know? I used to be very stressed about it. Yeah. Um, I'd read all 
the blog articles and the correct way to do things, the times of day, the amount of <laughs> posts you have to do. I tried to do that, but it just became too much. Yeah. And uh, the numbers, oh no. I, I always stress a lot about lack of followers and lack of likes. And then I just let it go. I thought to myself, I have an incredibly wonderful organic audience who are following me and supporting what I'm doing. And they give me great, really nice feedback, comments. Um, there's there's no one on there trolling me. Um, and if it does happen, I just block them. They're gone don't, straight don't away. Don't stress yeah. about it anymore. Um, and uh, I found that I can very easily let, let go of that and just live my life. And people can follow that if they want to. If they're not interested, then they don't. I think the good thing there is to someone who, like someone such as myself who's been in the social media, like that's my full-time job, I'm a social media marketer, so like, I I totally empathise with the whole thing about what time do I have to post, how many, uh, like swearing on my own podcast, I'm going to do it, it's all bullshit, so I think <laughs> I like the communities and I like engaging with people who might have what they call a micro community, so you might only have 5,000 followers, I like those people, those sorts of communities more, and you can automatically go on their page and you can see, like you said, a very strong organic community where people are regularly commenting on the stuff you're doing and God knows how many DMs you're getting from people and that sort of stuff. That to me is more valuable than say someone who has 20,000 followers and those people don't really give a shit about what that person's doing or they're from, they've somehow got those followers through, you know, dodgy means, they've bought them, they've, you know, they're from Russia, but this person's Australia, so why would someone from Russia care about what's going on in Australia? Whereas I imagine your community is all people who are probably seen you on any of these walks you're doing or you're about to do, um, known about you've come across you at a talk or something. So they're all, you, you know they're all going to be Australian or even like New Zealand maybe, I don't know. So all gonna, over the world. All over the world. Yeah. But... I like the more engaged communities better and it doesn't matter about the likes. I think if your message is getting through and it's resonating with someone to the point where they either follow you back or they are um, commenting or engaging with your content regularly, that's more powerful than any 50, 20,000 person community. You know what's more powerful than that? What? The contact you have one-on-one on the track, in person. Yep. You put your hammock up and someone comes over and goes, that looks good, where did you get that? Yeah. It's from Tear Gear. Yeah. From Tasmania. Yeah. And then, oh, right. And then, and for that business, if that results in a sale because you mentioned that and that, I like it, all just yeah. benefits everyone. But you know, you're right. It's like, I've found that even myself, the people I've met either on the trail or when I, when I had my meetup group and all that sort of stuff, and you know, everyone's sort of got a bit of a story to tell. You've mm. certainly got a story to tell, and yeah, you're right. That's that, that personal one-on-one or one-on-two or whatever interaction you have that I think they're the most meaningful sort of connections. So. And the time you give other people. Yeah. I'll, I'll quite often be out there camping, and no one will know my story yeah. because I want to listen to other people's stories, and everyone likes to tell their story. Yeah. Everyone, as I said, everyone's got a story. Like I, always, I love hearing how people got into hiking. Like I'm always interested in, like, what was it? Like, and that's why I was asking most of my interviews, like, how did you get into it? Like, I asked you, I've asked Laura, all the other people I've interviewed, how did you get into high school? How did you get into, say, they're an outdoor photographer? How did you get into outdoor photography? What was it? Was it like something that you just picked up a camera one day and decided to do it? Or was it something that you, it was always been with you? Like, for me with hiking, it was because I took a, a year off from, um, from study and, and football and, and whatnot and I had to do something because I was going to go back to football and then I got hiking and then I've been in golf by this is only in like 2014 mind you so very <laughs> early and I've just been swallowed up by the hiking craze and you it's know, fantastic yeah so um, 
any last words for anyone who might want to be doing something like you're doing? Like, I know you've got your mentoring program. So you you told me before that you like to, you know, if someone's got this crazy idea of walking from Western Australia to New South Wales or whatever, um, how does that all work? Like, what would you say to someone like that? It's possible to do it. Yeah. It really is. Uh, it takes a little bit of planning. Yeah. Um, it's very much a, a mental exercise as well as a physical exercise. Yeah. But um, when I started out, there weren't very many people to talk to because not very many people were online with yeah. these types of stories. And I like to be available for anyone to ask for advice to yep. I have some fantastic <laughs> anecdotes it's best to learn your lessons from other people than learn them the hard way yeah <laughs> but yeah reach out um, share your idea because it's not yeah. that crazy there are other people who have had crazier ideas than you yeah and uh, pursue it yeah. don't, don't don't let go of it because it seems too difficult and how could they get in touch with you about that sort of stuff like you know we mentioned your website before and, and your socials like Tell us yeah. Yeah, every channel, where can they find you? Okay, so my uh, Facebook, uh, my public Facebook page and my Instagram page is uh, um, Terra Romes with an S on the end yep. or Climate, Team Climate. Team Climate, yep. Yeah. Cool. And uh, I have a website, terrorooms.earth. Fantastic. No well, look, thank you so much for um, coming on the podcast. Like This has been something I think we spoke about... I reckon when I had Globewalker, so that was like 2017. Yeah, maybe. so yeah, remember. Yeah, when we first started <laughs> chatting about it, and then it's kind of rolled on from then. Obviously, you've had a lot going on, so um, I appreciate you reaching back out not too long ago and that we we're able to do this, and we're able to hang out a little bit more tomorrow at the Ladybirds um, Outdoor Adventure Expo. That's going to be fantastic, Which yes. is going to be a lot of fun where, you know, all the ladies there and anyone who attends is going to be able to hear your story. Um, and you know, as you said before, the question and answer side of things is going to be where you know they're going to get the most value, I think. So, mm. yeah. But look, thank you very much for um, for coming on. Um, I've always been interested in your story and like what's going on, how like I've seen it from afar on social. So to be able to sit here today and talk with you in person about it and more in depth as well, I really appreciate you sharing um, some of those uh, things you've learned, the things you went through, and the things that have come. So um, yeah, can't can't thank you enough. So. Oh, it's great to finally catch up. Yeah, thank you very much, John. You're welcome. No worries. <laughs> That was episode 23 of the Pursuit of the Outdoors podcast. Uh, if you would like to follow us on social media, you can uh, at the Hiking Society on Facebook and Instagram. And then obviously we've got our website as well at www.thehikingsociety.com.au. You can listen to this podcast on all major podcasting streams, including Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, etc., etc. Um, catch you on the next episode.